All right, I believe it's time that we get going. So I uh, would like to begin with just a couple of announcements. And uh, number one, I, I think you're aware of the fact that we're using attendance codes that are given during the lesson. Please be sure to send those codes to uh, the church phone or to the church email address so that we know you have watched or listened to the lesson. And then also I want to just say thank you for those of you that are tuning in uh, live for this lesson. This is part of Bible school. This is one of the reasons that the degree students, uh, we take attendance for them because part of learning for the ministry is learning how to be faithful, not just learning what the verses mean or learning how to preach, but learning how to pitch up when you need to. And that is one of the reasons it's important to stick with these classes uh, as, as faithful as you can. I understand not everybody has internet and sometimes life does throw us some curveballs that we have to deal with, but then following up with the lesson as soon as you can and letting us know that you listen to it, it's, it's just a, a means of staying faithful and disciplined, which is something you'll need in the ministry. So we're gonna open to Matthew chapter five and we'll be continuing tonight starting in verse number 21. We'll begin reading there, but uh, we've commented already a little bit, but we'll pick up the context again. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this evening, this opportunity to open up the Word of God and teach, and I pray that you'd open our hearts now. Lord Jesus, we uh, gather around your Word because we want to meet with you. We want to learn from you. Lord, this is the best sermon ever preached. So, Father, please speak to our hearts tonight from it. Please help me, fill me with your Spirit as I uh, try to give the students tonight what they, uh, Lord, what they need, not just from this passage, but, uh, Lord, for the ministry and for their future to fulfill the will of God. Please, God, meet with us. Help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 5 and verse 21. We are talking about the better application of the law. If you were with us Sunday morning, I actually preached from this passage, and the name of my sermon there was Going Deeper, which is still applicable. Uh, Jesus is showing them how to use the law properly. You don't just read the verse, tick the box, and say, well, I don't kill anyone, so I'm good. There's more to it. There's something deeper. Verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, He's not fixing the law. He's not correcting it. He's showing them what there is below the surface. There's something deeper. That whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So the root of murdering somebody is unchecked anger in your heart, unnecessary anger. And he says if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. Now this will speak to the kingdom age. Jesus is teaching a practical lesson about how to use the law, where murder starts, the origin of it is hatred in, in your heart. However, there are also some doctrinal and prophetical elements to this passage, and one of them being the strictness of the kingdom. When Jesus comes back, he rules the world with a rod of iron. And this can be seen in, in this verse, you'll see it in a few other places in this passage, but when he says you'll be in danger of the judgment, in the day and age in which Jesus said this, they had local 
councils set up. They were called Sanhedrins. That's the uh, Hebrew word for it. And these Sanhedrins or councils, they would handle local issues, just like a small courthouse in each town. Here in Patrasdrum, we have a courthouse. So any local laws that get any laws that get broken locally, they're not major, they get dealt with right there. In this case, if you're angry without a cause, you go to court. Then the next step, it gets a little worse. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka. Reka is an Aramaic word or Hebrew word that means useless or worthless. So you call somebody worthless, which in this day and age, uh, the day when Jesus said that, that was a, a massive insult to call someone that. You can see it in Jewish writing from this time period. He'll sh he shall be in danger of the council. Now this would be like the federal court. This would be the high court of the land. So even in Israel in those days, there were smaller Sanhedrin set up throughout the country, but then there was one major Sanhedrin which watch all, watched over and ruled over all the other smaller ones. So then it's a federal crime to do that. And then the last part, uh, it says, but whosoever shall say thou fool, and the Greek behind that is a, a moron, thou fool, he shall be in danger of hell fire. So it looks like in the kingdom age, you skip going to court altogether. If you're guilty of this offense, then you can be taken hand and foot, bound, thrown into the, the, the lake of fire that will be on the earth in that millennial time. And I'm gonna show you the verse for that. It's in Isaiah, but I'm gonna wait just a few verses because later on in the chapter, we're gonna to come to that again. But you can see the strictness that uh, Jesus will rule the, the world with in this kingdom time. Uh, anger is not to be taken lightly. And that's the lesson you wanna learn. If you want something practical, don't take holding a grudge and a root of bitterness, don't take that lightly. It's a major issue. Verse 23, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. So the situation is the guy's on the way to the temple, he has a sacrifice, he's gonna offer something to God. On his way there, he remembers that he's done his brother wrong. And Jesus says, put the gift down, put the sacrifice down, go make it right with your brother first. That's more important than offering the gift to God, than going through a religious ritual. You're better off making sure the relationships in your life are right. If you've done something to someone, make it right. Apologize for it, uh, pay them back. We're gonna talk more towards the end of the chapter about uh, if you've done something wrong and the kind of punishments that could be leveled for that. But you can see from verse 23 and 24, this kind of is a good illustration of what Jesus mentioned earlier in the chapter about being a peacemaker, right? Not a peace breaker. But you, if you harbor this, this wrath, if you let the sun go down upon it and you just leave things, hold on to that grudge, when you don't take care of those relationships with your fellow man, it will affect your relationship with God. Notice that Jesus said, don't leave the gift. Before you come and talk to God, go talk to your brother. There is a, a law, love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to love our brother. So when you fail to keep that law, you are also sinning against God at the same time. It's a twofer. 
So it does bother God when you do not handle your relationships properly, when you do not apologize. And you're actually causing that brother who you did wrong, you are tempting him to be angry, and he does have a cause. So it's of the utmost importance that you handle those things properly. And then to emphasize that, he says in verse 25, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him. So you've left your gift, and now you've gone, and you're talking to what should be your neighbor or your brother, but because you've done him wrong, he's your adversary. So while you're in the way, you're both walking, down, walking a path together, figure out something that will atone for what you've done wrong. Make it right. Lest, he says, at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now it looks as if this applies to the kingdom time when Jesus will be on the earth. This will be enforced. He says, if you've done something wrong and you owe your brother, I'm not going to let it slide. Jesus will demand justice. Now you can maybe just make a note in your Bible, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It shows how Jesus will, will rule that kingdom and the, the government will be upon his shoulders and so forth. But you can see how seriously he takes this. Uh, let me give you a couple other verses that will go nicely with this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you want to find that quickly. 1 Timothy 2. I just want to show you a verse or two that indicates if you do not fix things with your brother, that it can affect your prayer life. It'll, if, if, you're, if the horizontal relationships aren't right, man to man, then it affects the vertical relationships, man to God. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Paul says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So, it's a great verse on prayer. There are some things that would affect your prayer life. Doubting the promises of God, that's, that's a problem. And wrath. Don't pray with wrath and anger in your heart. Go fix it, then come and pray. Uh, you can see the same sentiment in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7. Now this is a, verse, uh, a passage on husbands and wives. But he says, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So if the husband and wife aren't getting along, and remember in Colossians, Paul warned the husbands, be not bitter against your wives. If there's some bitterness and wrath and uh, problems that aren't dealt with properly, then the prayer life gets hindered. So very important that that gets taken care of. Now back to Matthew 5. If you've done something wrong, you deserve to be punished. You can see that in verse 25 and 26. I'm going to talk more about that when we get to verse 38. So there's, there's more to be said on that subject. For now, let's move on. Verse 27. It says in verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now you want to take this along with verse 31. and We're not trying to skip the, the things in between, in between. We will look at that. But verse 31 says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So these two ideas are going to work together. What they were saying of old time, the, the people of old time, the thing was, 
don't commit adultery. But if you do, then just write a bill of divorcement on you go. That was part of it. And another problem the Jews had were they, they were getting divorced for all sorts of reasons, not, not just adultery. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through the passage. But th these two thoughts do work together. So verse 27, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now there are a lot of guys, a lot of people, let's not just say guys, but I don't know why it is we do turn to the men more when we get to this subject. But anybody can fall victim to this. They look at the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, and they say, well, as long as I don't physically go and do it, you know, look but don't touch, think but don't look. They believe that because they've limited themselves and they're not going through and fulfilling all these lusts that they're actually doing something. Now, I will grant you this. If you have the lust in your heart and you do not physically go, doing some, go and, and fulfill that and do something about it, you have stopped short of doing something even worse. Right? Let's not pretend that physical adultery is the same as adultery in the heart. It's, it's not quite the same. Jesus is showing us that adultery starts in the heart. And I'm not going to... I don't think we're comparing apples to apples to say the adultery in the heart is worse than adultery, uh, outward adultery with the body. I, I'm not sure which one you want to say is worse. But think of it this way. Adultery in the heart, you only need one person for that, right? Physical, actual, uh, I say actual, Physical adultery where two bodies join, now you have to have two people for that. But the adultery that Jesus is going to speak of in verse 28, you only need one person. Furthermore, if you only think about it in your heart, you can't catch an STD from that. So we can't say that adultery of the heart and adultery of the body are the same sins. It's not the same. They are different. But if you want to avoid physical adultery, messing up, and, and physically committing the act, then you need to protect your eyes. And if you want to protect your eyes, you need to protect your heart. Adultery starts in the heart. And then once that lust builds up in your heart, you go looking for it. And it's a vicious cycle from there because once your heart builds up that desire, you give in, you go look for it and, and, and look at it. A lot of times this happens with pornography then it just feeds the heart. It makes the heart yearn for it even more, and then it makes the eyes want to see it even more, and it just builds and builds, and it's a horrible, vicious cycle. So at the end of the day, the lesson is watch out for what's going on in your heart. Now verse 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He hasn't committed physical adultery, but he has committed a form of adultery. And God is looking on that man's heart, and he knows what's happening in there. Can you imagine on the day of judgment having to give an account for every thought of the imagination of your heart? Right? That's, that's, the Bible breaks it down to that level. The thoughts of the imagination of your heart it can be a scary thing. I'd like to show you a verse in Job chapter 31. Job 31 verse 1. So, Jesus said, over there in Mark chapter 7, he's talking about where evil comes from. I believe it's also in Matthew 15, but he, he says that all these evil things come from within. They come from the heart, and adultery is in the list. So adultery starts in the heart. Its next stop is the eyes. And then if you don't check it there, 
it will eventually take over the entire body. You'll end up doing something you regret. Job 31, verse 1. Now notice how Job handled it. He said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Notice the protective measures that Job has put in place here. I made a covenant. I made a deal with my eyes. Eyes, I'm not going to put anything in front of you that you shouldn't look at. And that way, I won't think about anything I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't desire. The eyes are connected to the desire. It's connected to the thoughts. So this is a very good preventative measure. Protect your eyes. Make a covenant with them. Like David said in, in, I believe it's Psalm 101, verse 3, which, by the way, that's the attendance code for this class, Psalm 101, verse 3. I have set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Now, that's, that's wonderful. And a lot of guys, when they struggle with pornography or things of this nature, that's the first measure they do. They say, I, I won't look at anything wrong. But you need to go even deeper. This is a good measure. But you need to go down to the heart. You need to learn the proper value of sex. You need to see it as more than just a sensual itch that you yearn to scratch. You need to see it as something sacred, something God-ordained, something special. It is something that forms a long-lasting bond between two people. It is something that has very long-term effects, very long-term consequences, if you want to think of it in a bad way. But sex has a very special purpose in the plan of God as to how we should use it naturally between a man and a woman. It's reserved for marriage. When you value it like that, when you get your heart right about that, then rather than thinking about anything that comes along and every whim of your desire, every whim of your fancy, as they say, as soon as your heart starts to yearn that way, you'll realize, you'll stop and say, wait a minute, this this act of sex, this is meant for a specific uh, thing. This is meant for marriage. I want to save this desire for the person I'm going to eventually marry. And if you're married, then you should already be funneling all that desire to your wife or your husband and not be thinking about other people, obviously. But if you value sex properly, then, you get, then it's right in the heart. That will that will automatically fix where your eyes go. Let's keep moving through the passage. In verse 29, he says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Verse 30, much the same thought. He says, And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, a couple years ago when I had my first debate with Yusuf Ismail, we got to the question and answer time, and one of the Muslims in the crowd stood and asked me, why do Christians not obey these verses? Why do we not see Christians amputating and plucking out the eye and so forth? Why don't they take these verses seriously? My response to him was that we do. We, we do take them seriously. I believe exactly as Jesus said, if you had to choose between entering the kingdom with a missing body part or missing a body part or going to hell, it's obviously better if, you, if, if it requires this drastic of a measure, 
then it's better to amputate. It's better to pluck out your eye if that's what it takes to overcome that lust so that you can follow Christ, enter the kingdom, then by all means, yes, I believe these verses should be followed to the nth degree. However, this is a drastic measure, right? There are other ways to overcome these sins, these, uh, this, this sin of lust here. Uh, the Bible says that, of course, in Christ we're new creatures. You can overcome sin through Christ. I would recommend trying that first before you start amputating anything. Uh, you know what a lot of guys should do? Rather than cutting off their hand, they should cut their internet wire. That might help a lot. Amputate that uh, before you go amputating a, a body part. But we get the point. Jesus is saying this is serious. If you don't get this in check, it could cost you the kingdom. Now, as you and I would think of this practically today, there are people that are so in love with sin, in this, in this case we're talking about uh, a particular lust, but people can be in love with a particular sin, whatever besetting sin it is, so much that they are unwilling to get saved because they know if they get saved, Jesus is not going to allow that. And I've heard it many times as I've been out witnessing. People say, you know, I, I know I need to get saved, but I, I just don't think that I can get over my sin, quit my sin. And therefore, they, don't, they reject salvation. They reject Christ based on that. Now, I try to encourage them and, and advise them that they're getting it backwards. They do not need to overcome sin on their own first and then come to Christ. They come to Christ and then the Lord will help them overcome the sin. Please understand that's the correct order of things, the correct procedure. But there are a lot of folks that will miss out on the kingdom and be, be cast into hellfire because they just loved their lust more than the Lord. Now, I mentioned earlier I would show you a verse on being cast into hell. Up in verse 22, he said they're in danger of hell fire. So take your Bible, look at Isaiah chapter 66. And right at the end of that chapter, we're going to read the last two verses, verse 23 and 24. Uh, the context, we're looking here at, at the kingdom age, when Jesus is seated, seated upon the throne of his father David. And... It says in verse 23, It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now, you might remember Jesus quoting this uh, a few times in his ministry about the worm dying not and the fire not being quenched. This is where he took it from. But during the kingdom age, people will be able to go out to a certain location and look at the carcasses of men that are in that lake of fire. Now in Revelation class, there's, we, we go over this. I'll just briefly explain it. But at the end of Revelation 19, you see that there's a lake of fire that is produced during the second coming of Christ. And it runs, uh, it runs alongside Jerusalem and on down towards Bozrah, right down that direction. It goes up farther north as well, all the way up towards uh, Syria, that direction. But that lake of fire, it's, it's there as a constant reminder during the millennium of how serious sin is. 
So we don't have a, I'm not going to get real in depth on, in, in this. There's more we could say about it. But when Jesus says you're in danger of hell fire or you could be cast into hell, as I say, there's a practical element. There's some great lessons we learned in Matthew 5 about overcoming sin and digging down to the root of it. But then there's the doctrinal element, which is also a prophetical element where he's, he's laying out some ground rules for his kingdom and how, how strictly he'll deal with sin. Come back to Matthew 5 now, and let's get verse 31. Matthew 5 and verse 31. Jesus says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Now this is something that was based off of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, which I'm going to read for you quickly. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. So in the law, Moses wrote, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. So there it stood in the law. Now, what the Jews did is they took that law and they took that word uncleanness and they said, okay, anything I don't like about my wife I can just write a bill of divorcement and dissolve the marriage. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 19, and in verse number 3, you can see their interpretation of it. Matthew 19, 3, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That's what they were doing. They, they, they thought any cause, anything that we don't like, if she doesn't make lekker pop, then kick her out. And that's not how it was intended. That word back in Deuteronomy 24.1, when it says uncleanness, the, the, the root of that word, the Hebrew word, it has to do, it's often translated as nakedness, actually, throughout the Old Testament. That uncleanness had to do with finding out that your wife had done something promiscuous, that she was not a virgin, even though maybe she said she was, or that she had cheated on you. If, if you find that kind of uncleanness, then you can divorce. Come back to Matthew 5, and you'll see in verse 32, Jesus says, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, then here comes one exception, saving for the cause of fornication. So if she's cheated, then you have biblical grounds for divorce. Now this does work the other way around, right? If the man cheats, then the wife can also uh, ask for the divorce. But we're just going to address it the way Jesus has here. So, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, there's a lot that we can say about this. I'm, I'm sorry, this keeps shaking, guys. Forgive me. I'm working off of my desk, so forgive me. I know the camera's not perfectly stable. Um, there's a lot we can say about verse 32 because when it comes to marriage relationships and divorce, it gets very complicated. As you well know from Matthew 19, Jesus, when he answered the Pharisees about divorce, he explained to them divorce was never part of God's original plan for marriage. That was one of the after effects of sin coming in and then because of the hardness of our hearts, God had to make some laws to kind of legislate that whole procedure. And Yes, in the case of fornication, God does allow the divorce. Beyond that, beyond that, the only other biblical cause for a divorce would be somebody uh, 
if somebody departs and, and leaves you completely stranded, then God, I don't think, would hold you accountable if they just left the marriage. Then the one who is left behind is not at fault. If somebody's cheated, then you're at no fault to get the divorce, to ask for the divorce. But this stuff of we just can't get along, we can't work our problems out, um, that, that should never be the case with two Christians. You should be able to apply biblical principles to your marriage and get things worked out. But rather than deal with all the what-ifs and, and uh, I heard, you know, I have this story or my wife or husband has done this, I'm going to try to just stick with the story we have here in verse 32. So the situation that Jesus is explaining to us here, the man has put away his wife, but not, for, not because she cheated, just because he found something he didn't like about her. They weren't getting along. Now, that wife, what is she to do? She still has human needs. She still has uh, sexual desires, right? That sex drive is still in her. And Paul said, 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn. And not burn in hell there. He's talking about burning in your lust. So this woman who has now been ditched by her, by her husband, the man has moved on. He was at fault. He had no biblical reason for getting the divorce, and yet he did it anyway. Now, what's the wife to do? Does she have to stay single the rest of her life? Well, if, if we force her into that and say, you cannot get remarried because you've been divorced, now we're putting her in the situation where she's going to burn in her lust, and that could lead to something dangerous. She could end up in sin because of that. So if this woman, who was done wrong, goes off and gets remarried, it says here that the man who asked for the divorce in the first place, her first husband, causeth her to commit adultery. Is she committing adultery? Technically, yes, because that first marriage was not properly dissolved. They did not have a scriptural or a, a God-based reason, a God-approved reason for dissolving that marriage. So technically, yes, the marriage covenant is still in effect. And that woman is in an adulterous situation by having another man However, it is not her fault. So I'd like to read you a couple verses on this. 1 Corinthians 7. This chapter does a tremendous job of explaining problems um, as it pertains to marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 27. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. All right, so that, these are the marching orders. Now, what if, what if you are loosed from a wife, but... While you're single, you realize, I, I cannot stay like this and stay out of sin. I'm going to get in trouble. What, what are your options? Well, better to marry than to burn. So he says in verse 28, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. So Paul says, I'm giving you the, this advice to spare you some trouble. When you enter into a marriage, even if it's your first marriage, <laughs> blending two lives together is not easy. Now, you take somebody that's been divorced, and then now they're on their second marriage. That brings an extra amount of trouble. Are you sinning? Well, let's use Matthew 5.32. The man has departed from the wife, put away his wife. Now, the wife gets remarried. Is it adultery? Technically, yes. Is it her fault? Is she sinning? 
No. I would say no. You say, but it's adultery. But she didn't cause it. Jesus said the man who put the wife away, he caused it. It's his fault. And, and the same, he, as Jesus finished the verse, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Yes, technically he's also entered into that, but that adulterous situation is the fault of that man. Now, let me show you a verse from Numbers that will help support the idea that God holds the responsible party guilty, the one who caused the sin. And this is a very unique and nuanced situation, so I realize that uh, you may not be able to apply it in, in a lot of other areas, but here's another area where you do see it happening. Numbers 30 and verse 15. Now, this is a unique passage. In Numbers 30, we're talking about a husband or a father. And in either case, if the husband or the father has heard his wife or his daughter make a vow, he has 24 hours to veto that vow. If he doesn't veto that vow within that time, then the vow stands. Now, if the husband or the father wants to veto the vow and say, no, no, you don't have to follow through with that vow, let's say a week later. Well, technically, technically that wife or that daughter is in breach of the vow, but it's not her fault. It's the husband or the father's fault. So uh, Numbers 30 verse 15, it says, but if he shall anyways make them void after that he hath heard them, this is after that 24 hour grace period, then he shall bear her iniquity. So God holds him responsible for it. So I think the same thing is going to be applicable with adultery. Now I realize that you might have a unique situation, so I'm going to advise you to do this. If you have questions about certain situations, maybe in your own life or the life of some loved ones, uh, schedule a meeting with, with me personally, and then we can discuss that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. All right, so back to Matthew 5 and verse 33, moving on to the next, the next uh, saying of old time. Verse 33 says, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. Now the word forswear, it means perjury, uh, to break an oath or to lie under oath. In this particular case, now it's wrong to commit perjury, right? And there are places in the New Testament that specifically mentions that. So if you are in a courtroom situation or in a business situation and you give an oath, then you better be telling the truth. The way Jesus is mentioning this, however, to forswear thyself, that is you vowed something to the Lord, now you need to follow through with it. You need to pay that vow. So he says, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. So the people of old time, they said, Vowing's fine, but just make sure you follow through and pay it. Well, technically there's nothing wrong with that, actually. In, in, uh, I'm going to read you a verse here in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 21. Uh, the Bible says here, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. Now the next verse in that passage says, But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. Now this is further expounded upon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So just for the sake of time, we're not going to run through all those verses, but it explains there how... It's better to do and not vow than vow and not do. So 
Uh, you can take a look at that later. But Jesus' point here, verse 34, But I say unto you, Matthew 5, 34, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His, his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. So, again, Jesus is going deeper here. These people would vow, and the Jews were very fond of this, and, and the, the scribes and Pharisees had a massive problem with this, actually. We're going to cover it more when we come to Matthew 23. They were offering sacrifices and doing it to be seen of men. And as they would do it, they would make these grandiose vows and invoke the heavens, or they would invoke the, the gold of the temple or the gift of the altar. They would make a big deal. I swear by this and by that in trying to make their deed to be seen and heard and to make it something really big. So, so that's, that was a major issue that, like I said, we'll deal with later. Jesus, what he's getting at here is, guys, there really shouldn't be a need to call upon or invoke some greater thing to add to what you're doing. If you're doing it for the right reasons, just do it. We don't, we don't need to hear all these extra things that you add to it. Uh, notice in verse 34 and 35, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem, don't swear by your head. These are all things that you have no control over. Even your own head. The Jews were very fond of this. They would, you can find it in their writings from around this time often. They would say, I swear by my head or the life of my head. It was just a common phrase. Jesus points out, guys, you can't make one hair white or black. Now, I know with hair dye, right, we've, we've figured out a way around that. But obviously, we're talking the natural hair color. You have no choice in that. You're born with whatever color hair you have. So these are things you have no control over. So don't, you have no business invoking them. How can you call upon them? It's almost like you're using that as collateral, right, to, to say... If I were to fail, then earth would fail or heaven would fail. You can't say that. You have no control over that. So the point he's making at, the lesson is in verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. If you have to invoke some greater object or being, what that indicates is your word is not strong enough by itself. We, we can't believe you by yourself. Which would indicate that in the past you have not lived up to your word. So the fact that you have to add an oath shows that there is a history of evil. There is a history of you failing to make good on your promises and to make good on your word just at all. Let your yea be it. Yes should mean yes and no should mean no. If you say you're going to do it, do it. I cannot stress to you how important, how fundamentally important this is to society and to your home, to your relationship with God. I don't know how many times people have made commitments and not taken them seriously. Well, there's people that commit to Bible school, right? Every year they sign their name, I'm going to do the degree. That yes doesn't mean yes. There are people that sign a marriage contract. That yes doesn't mean yes. I, I don't know where it went wrong, but at some point in their life, they, they 
I guess, didn't take themselves seriously enough. They didn't realize just how valuable their words were and are. Uh, if I can just, I'll share one verse with you on this. James chapter 5. And I believe if you read the book of James closely, you'll see a lot of the Sermon of the Mount in the book of James. But James 5 and verse 12, he says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation, lest we, we find fault in what you're doing. So he says, above all things, my brethren, don't swear. Now, if I'm James, I wouldn't have put not swearing at the top of the list, right? I would have put anger issues or adultery higher up on the list. He says, guys, above all things, make sure that your word is your oath. If you say it, then you mean it and you follow through with it. This is what makes God so wonderful. Did you realize that? This is what separates, one of the things that separates our God, the God of the Bible, from all the other supposed gods. When God says it, He means it. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. How do, why are we so confident in that? God promised to send His Son. He promised to send this seed into the world, the Messiah. And He did. He prophesied. He said that he will die, he'll rise again, and he did. All of this has come to pass. So we trust God at his word. We take him at his word. And if we are to be followers of God, then our communication should be of the same nature, that if we say it, we do it. Verse number 38, it says here, Ye have heard uh, that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this law you'll find in, uh, let me get the verse for you, Deuteronomy. It's in a few places, actually, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, but I'm going to give you the one from Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. Uh, and this is a phrase I think a lot of us are familiar with, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But notice what we're dealing with here. Very important. Very important. We're dealing here with people that are guilty. When you look at these contexts, eye for an eye, that is, you have done something to affect that person's eye. You have caused their, them to go blind in one eye. Then you deserve to be punished with an equal punishment. Tooth for a tooth. You knocked one of their, tooth, one of their teeth out, one of your teeth should come out. It, it's the passage, the context is dealing with punishment. Verse 39, But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. This verse gets quoted independently of its context so often that people get the idea that Jesus was teaching pacifism and saying that Christians essentially should just be doormats, that we're not allowed to stand up for ourselves. If somebody wants to do us wrong, we just let them do the wrong. Folk, folks, that's not what Jesus is teaching here at all. When he, I've read several commentaries that try to explain it in such a way, but that, it just won't work to say, Resist not evil. So if someone's attacking you, don't resist it. I'm sorry. I, that is not consistent with anything else in the Bible. It's not consistent with, with, uh, with the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he asked his disciples, uh, do you have swords? He made sure they had swords. Now, he didn't say go start a war. 
But the only reason I can think that they would need swords is for self-defense. And that's a, maybe a, a separate issue, but the idea of pacifist doormats, that's not what Jesus wants us to be. When he says that you resist not evil, evil, the word evil can be used in the sense of getting punished. Now, there's a couple verses that would, that would prove this. In Jeremiah 40, verse 2, it says, God hath pronounced this evil upon this place. Talking about Jerusalem. So the Chaldeans had come in and they were destroying it. And it was actually a Chaldean speaking there, if memory serves. And he says, God hath pronounced this evil. So all this destruction, this punishment, God's the one who brought it. And the same thing you'll see in 1 Kings 9 and verse 9 is the same thought. God can bring evil upon a land as a punishment. So if you've done something wrong and you deserve to be punished, verse 25 and 26, then don't resist it. Don't say, well, I'm a follower of Christ, so, you know, I'm under grace, so I think we should just let it slide. No, as a follower of Christ, you should be living up to a higher standard. You are a city set on a hill. You should be a higher standard. So the follower of Christ... He says, okay, I've done you wrong. I got angry, I lost my temper, and I hit you in the face. So what do you deserve? You deserve to be hit in the face. So you hit that guy on the right cheek. So you now deserve to be hit on the right cheek. But as a follower of Christ, we go a little further. We turn the other cheek and say, you know what? I should have known better. Shame on me. And to show you that I am sorry that I repent and that I, I truly want to avoid this in the future, I'll take a double punishment. Imagine if we had that attitude towards sin. To say, God, if I get out of line, you can punish me double. And to say to your fellow man, I will show you just how high my standard of living should be. I'm very sorry, you can hit me twice. Now, that might sound strange. You might say, oh, but where would, why would God expect a, a double punishment? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for you. The Bible says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Verse 2, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord exacted double punishment on His people. So this is not unheard of. This is the standard that Jesus wants His followers to have, a higher standard. He wants us to take it a little further. What would the world expect? What would the world consider fair? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which that is fair by the world's standards, by man's standards. But if you're going to be a follower of Christ and you have this advanced revelation, you have, you have more light than the rest of the heathen, then you hold yourself to that higher standard, and you say, you should expect more from me. So I believe it's a double punishment that he's asking. He says in verse number 40, if you doubt it, now watch verse 40, and if any man will sue thee at the law, See, you're guilty. You did something wrong. You got sued. And take away thy coat. You were found guilty, and now they confiscate your coat. Let them have thy cloak also. Offer that up. A cloak is, I always think of Little Red Riding Hood when I think of a cloak, but it's, it's a hood with a cape. That's a cloak. Um, he says if he, if he sued you for your coat, give him something extra. Double punishment. You add to it. Now, 
from that thought, I, the next verse I don't think is, has anything to do with the punishment. But Jesus is going to continue in that vein of thinking of taking things a step further. As Christians, as disciples of Christ, we have that higher standard. So verse 41, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, a mile. Now, the, technically, mile here, the way we now measure distance, right? This is 1.6 kilometers. That's a mile. But based on the way it was used here, a mile is a thousand paces. The root of this, I believe the Greek is million here, so a thousand. He says, if he compels thee to go a mile, go with him twain, go double. So your neighbor, your brother, your friend, even a, who knows, a total stranger might ask for help and say, can you help me carry this load or help me deliver this or help me go pick something up and it's a mile away. Say, brother, I'll go, out, I'll go two miles if you ask. If you need my help, I'll go the extra mile. Uh, verse 42, now again, he's carrying on with this thought of going above and beyond. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So it's the idea of being, I, I want to say overly generous, but that, that's probably not the best way to say it. Just generous, right? Overly generous would make it sound as if you're being foolish with your money, which I want to caution you. The Bible says, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Psalm 112, verse 5. So when somebody asks, you are allowed to say no, given the proper circumstance, right? And Jesus actually taught us this. In Matthew 25, he gave the parable of the ten virgins. And the five wise ones were asked by the five foolish ones, Give us of your oil. And they said no. So there is a time and a place where you would say no, but as followers of Christ, our dial is set to generosity. Our instinct should be give. Let me help. If there's something I can do, I will, I will not just give, I'll give generously. All right, so verse 20, or, uh, 43, rather, he goes on to another aspect of uh, the old sayings. Ye have heard that it, it, it sorry, ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, in the Old Testament, you can find Scripture talking about hating your enemy. And David even mentioned this in Psalm 139. He talks about hating the enemies of the Lord, and he hates them with a perfect hatred. So, from this, the general thought amongst Jewish society was, if, if somebody's your enemy, it's okay to hate them. Well, we cannot be careful here because the temptation is to say hate is wrong. Hate is sin. Be careful. God hates people. Right? There are verses where it, it comes right out and says that, that God hates certain people. So be very careful before you say hate equals sin. That's not always the case. What you, what you want to learn here is you cannot, even in David's case, for, uh, for, for example, when he hates his enemy, it's not just hate and that's it. I, I'll never forgive them, never have mercy. That, that would be wrong. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day, right? The Bible says in Psalm 5.5 that God hates workers of iniquity. This is true, Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, uh, maybe verse 18 as well, talks about God abhorring and hating certain people. I'm sorry for that shaking. 
certain, uh, he, he hates certain people. And there's other verses that talk about this as well. There is hatred there, but God is ready to forgive. He's plenty of, he has uh, plenty of mercy. So there's a balance there. The point Jesus is getting across, love your neighbor, uh, lo love your uh, neighbor, sorry, and hate your enemy. That's what the people of old times said that was acceptable. If somebody's an enemy, all you have to do is hate them. Jesus says, we go above and beyond. We're not going to live by a worldly standard. We're going to take it another step. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. So, notice Jesus says, love your enemies. He didn't say, the enemies have to become friends. You have to treat the enemy properly. You have to love them. You're not allowed to harbor this hatred. And that's what the, Jew, the Jews took those verses from the Old Testament and said, well, it's perfectly fine. If I don't like somebody, I treat them wrong and hateful and say mean things. No, no, no. If, if they're despitefully using you, persecuting you, you're not allowed to revile them back. They call you a name. You cannot fire one back at them. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. Being reviled, he reviled not again. So he says... Verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, you have to keep in mind when Jesus said this. This is before the cross. This is before the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and began to baptize people into the body of Christ and give them the new birth in that way. Uh, as far as I can see, that, well, there's two ways I think you could approach this. Number one, people who enter into the kingdom, for instance, tribulation saints, they will receive the new birth upon entering into the kingdom. Re uh, Old Testament Jews that get resurrected at the beginning of the kingdom age, they will receive the new birth upon that resurrection. Ezekiel 36 talks about how the Spirit from God comes into them and a new heart and so forth. So the new birth can, can tie into the kingdom in that way. However, we might be reading a verse here that simply speaks to people being followers of God, right? following in the footsteps of His example. And because if you read the rest of verse 45, I think you might see that. He says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So God treats his enemies well. He still loves them. Now, I don't have time to get into the various levels to God's love because there are three distinct levels. There's a a ground floor where God loves the whole world and provides for them in this manner, has a certain amount of mercy for them. But once you get saved and you're in His family, there's the second level. That's the familial love. Uh, he loves you as a child, uh, as, as an adopted child. And then there's an, another level on top of that when you become an obedient child. We will discuss those three levels at a different time. But the idea that Jesus is getting across the worldly standard is your neighbor, your friends, you can treat them well. Your enemies, you don't have to treat them well. You can be nasty to them. And he says that's not, that's not how we do things. The Father is good even to people that hate Him. So we follow that example. Verse 46, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? He says that anybody can do that. The, the, the worst of people live up to that. Do not even the publicans the same, the tax collectors, which at this time were considered the, the worst of the worst. In verse 47, And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? 
Do not even the publicans so? Now notice that phrase there in the middle. What do ye more than others? Jesus is expecting his followers to go above and beyond the call of duty. He expects more from them. Verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, I've heard that I've heard this verse quoted and used by a lot of well-meaning uh, evangelists and preachers, and they use it to say that God demands perfection to get into heaven, and and then they turn to this verse. See, Jesus said you have to be perfect, even as God is perfect, and because we've sinned, we've fallen short of that perfection, and therefore we need to be saved. I understand the thought they're trying to get across there, and. There is some truth in what they're saying. However, this verse doesn't actually support that. According to the context, Jesus is saying, be complete. Perfect as incomplete, not as in sinless. Be complete. So the Father loves His family, He loves His friends, and He loves His enemies. See? And that's what He wants us to do. We should not be partial and only love our friends. We should even love those that hate us, despitefully use us, and so forth. And if, if we love both groups, then we are perfect or complete as the Father in heaven. All right, so that's where we're going to stop for the night. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's, it's hard to move super fast through this. I would love to be making more progress. And as the book goes on, we'll have some opportunities to cover maybe uh, a chapter and a half or two chapters. But for now, we're... We don't want to skip any of these important things.